An ocean and a decade are a good distance from which to observe your homeland. What seems like an earthquake up close hardly makes a ripple over the water, and you see with greater clarity social changes. In the last ten years, the most subtle of these seems to be America is acquiring a past. American society has always been focused on the future. It's the reason for American optimism. My compatriots took comfort in the certainty that tomorrow would always be better than today. With the constant looking ahead, the past tended to be ignored. But in recent years, the future has become an uncertain place. People have begun to look to the past for certainty. But even here, they're having a hard time finding it. The problem is that while the facts of American history are generally agreed, what those facts mean isn't. There's one region of the country where this grand generalization isn't applicable the South. Perhaps because it was briefly a nation of its own before being forced to rejoin the United States after a bloody civil war, but in the southern states, people know exactly what the facts of their history mean, and they see in that history signs pointing a new way forward for the whole country. It's no surprise that the most radical politician in the U.S., House Speaker Newt Gingrich, is a history professor from the South. The sovereign state of Mississippi is the most spiritually southern state of all. It's the southern state where the past has its tightest grip. Or so it seemed to me. I'd never actually been there. So I found myself going south into Mississippi, the opening line from an old blues song going around over and over in my head. Can't tell my future, sure can't tell my past. The song had been recorded in the 1920s in an area of northwestern Mississippi called the Delta, and that's where I was headed. As a northerner, a Yankee, I had plenty of preconceptions about Mississippi, most of them negative. It had never been all that enticing a place, except for the Delta, where the blues was born. The Delta seemed like a good place to acclimatize myself to Mississippi. I'd listen to the blues in its purest form and ease myself into this trip. But with each mile I drove into the region, it became clear there would be no time to adjust my Yankee sensibility to this very different world, because I was in the poorest, saddest-looking part of America I have ever seen. I passed through little hamlets, each one more forlorn than the last. The one-story buildings were a strong breeze away from collapse. It was impossible to believe that these stores and houses had ever been new, or that they were in the United States. I rolled towards Clarksdale, the Delta's unofficial capital. On the outskirts of town, on Highway 61, there was a neon strip of fast food joints, motels, and filling stations. These ugly buildings came as a relief. They were the first new ones I'd seen in several hours. Turning where a small sign pointed towards downtown, I re-entered the landscape of poverty, blocks and blocks of it. I looked for the main street and turned down Issaquina Street, it had been a business district once. Now it was a forbidding stretch of one- and two-story buildings on the verge of collapse, with dozens of people wandering from door to door. They were all black, just as every person I'd seen walking in the little tumble-down hamlets was black. In fact, other than a few guys fishing by a dam, I hadn't seen a white person in the street since I drove into the Delta. I went under a railway bridge to the right side, the white side of the tracks, and found myself in downtown Clarksdale. I wandered around for a bit and found a blues record shop, Rooster Records, walked in and started thumbing through the racks. Seated by the counter was a woman in her early twenties, sitting cross-legged on a chair, wearing a long smock which draped over her round belly. She was very pregnant. 
We started talking about records. Then she asked me where I was from. People from Mississippi have a distinctive accent. I didn't have it, and neither did she, so as a couple of outsiders, we began to talk. I explained what I was doing, traveling and writing. She asked my impressions so far, and I said that in the five or six hours I had been in Mississippi, my first impression was of the poverty. I had never seen anything like it. It looked more like photos I had seen of Soweto in South Africa during the worst days of apartheid. Then she asked me, have you noticed how black people are here? I was surprised by the frankness of the question. I'm glad you asked that, I said to the young woman, because the folks here are the most African-looking African-Americans I have ever seen. Now, whatever embarrassment I might have felt about discussing race this frankly, and as a liberal from the North, I felt plenty, it was eased by the fact that the young woman, whose name was Selina, was herself of mixed race. Her father was black. Selina picked up my point about people's complexions. That's right. The separation of the races here was much stronger than in other parts of the South, so there wasn't the same interbreeding that happened on plantations in other places. Selina, whose own complexion was very light brown, went on to tell me that local black women asked her why she hung around, when, with skin so light, she could pass for white. She could get out. Selina, however, was staying for a while because, at the weekend, she was marrying the father of her baby, who happened to own Rooster Records, and she invited me to come to the wedding. I spent the next few days exploring the Delta. I began to notice there were white people. You just have to know where to find them. I spotted them in their cars or out at the new shopping mall on Highway 61. But I was becoming increasingly disturbed by the fact that white folks seemed so separate. I stopped in at the local newspaper, and one of the editors, Debbie Long, Delta born and bred, tried to explain why. The biggest change in my lifetime, without a doubt, has been integration, she began. Long was in school in the mid-1960s when forced integration programs had gone into effect. Most whites simply pulled their children out of the state system and sent them to private academies rather than have them attend school with black kids. Debbie Long's parents hadn't, and overnight she found herself one of only two whites in her class. She did not have happy memories of her minority status. I asked her about the absence of whites in the street. In the Delta, she explained, echoing Selena, the races don't mingle in any social sense. Work is a different question. Debbie's family were farmers, and their hired hands were black. Her daddy provided their housing. Individual relationships were formed, but they were limited. Down here, we have a saying about blacks. Love the individual, hate the race. I think there must have been a moment's silence. I said, you all do speak frankly about race down here. As Debbie Long showed me to the door, she asked me to try and understand Mississippi and to be kind in what I wrote. I needed to get away from all this racial talk. I drove out of Clarksdale. Due west on the horizon was a hump running as far as the eye could see. It was the levee, the earthwork built up to contain the Mississippi River within its course. I drove up over the levee, and a few hundred yards on the other side was the massive, mile-wide river, turbid with silt carried from places a thousand miles away, from Minnesota and Dakota and Ohio. I spent more than a little time watching the river flow, but I couldn't get the race issue out of my mind. I knew that I would have to deal with it when I came to Mississippi, but I had no idea it would be like this. Frank talk about race, all euphemisms stripped away. The question of race is the central question of American history, 
that's too euphemistic. The question of black people and their role in society is the central issue. And the inadequate resolution of that question is behind a tremendous amount of social tension around the country today. Uh, that's too euphemistic. Not tension. The hostility between whites and blacks is greater than at any time in living memory. No one knows what the other side wants. People hardly have words to talk to each other. Integration was the answer when I was growing up. Now plenty of people on both sides question it. In the Delta, all questions about race were resolved long ago. Integration may be the temporal law, but segregation is the spiritual law. Segregation is the answer. And blacks in the Delta seemed on the surface to accept that, even if their separateness condemned most of them to living in poverty, which, until I saw it with my own eyes, was beyond my imagining, and, and it just didn't seem right. As you can tell, I was a little upset. Wanting to have some frank talk about race with some local black people, I went back to Issaquina Street that evening. I walked into a club called J.J.'s to listen to the blues. It was as decrepit inside as it was outside. I was the only white person in there. No one made much of the fact. I sat down at a table and two young women joined me, but serious conversation was not on their mind. Fun was. They started talking themselves into a good time, and the music hadn't even started. The younger of the two, about eighteen, told her friend a joke. I laughed, too. She turned to me and said, I've got two kids. I told my babies I work for you all week. Tonight is my night. And she smiled. She was missing her front teeth. The band struck up and promptly blew out all the fuses. Even the electrical system in JJ's was decrepit. It took two more tries before they finally got going. But when they did, the sound of their blues spread thick and sweet in the ear, the way honey spreads thick and sweet over the tongue. The rhythm of the music made it impossible to sit still. I simply stood up out of my chair and started dancing by myself. Time stopped. The physical decrepitude of J.J. seemed unimportant. The questions I wanted answered seemed unimportant, too. There was just the music. Finally, Saturday night came, Selena's wedding, and for the first time in Mississippi, I was in a room with white and black folks together. Selena's fiancé, Jim O'Neill, a white blues fanatic, had come to the Delta twenty years before, stayed, and started recording the local musicians. Most of them were at the wedding. The white folks were a handful of locals for whom the music was a bridge across the chasm between their own upbringing and their black neighbors. There were also a few Yankee liberals who had made a permanent home in the Delta, hooked on the culture. The ceremony was being held at Mayfields, a big house on the white side of the tracks with a huge wraparound porch, large entrance hall, and parlors and living rooms going off in all directions. A piano was set up in the entrance hall, and a young black man was playing softly. If the wedding had been held in church, he'd have been playing a selection of hymns and popular classical airs on the organ. Here it was blues, but he imparted to the notes the sacred feeling of church music. The ceremony was improvised and beautiful, and when it was over, the pianist struck up, Let the good times roll. And they did. We adjourned to the Rivermount Lounge, another tumble-down club for a real party. Everyone who could play the blues did, and everyone who couldn't danced. Out on the dance floor, we were all one ensemble. There was no bandstand. The musicians mingled with the dancers. But I would be lying if I said the full distance between the white folks and the black folks was bridged. It wasn't. 
I had one more musical appointment to keep before leaving the Delta. I had struck up a conversation with Kenneth Lackey, the young man playing piano at Selena's wedding. He seemed interested in answering my questions about being black in this segregated world. Lackey invited me to a concert of gospel music in which he was singing. He said we might have a chance to chat then. So I packed up and Sunday evening drove down to Jonestown, one of the tumble-down black hamlets I had passed through on my way into Clarksdale. Add the sacred to the blues, gospel music is what you get. There were several hundred people at the concert. Once again, I was the only white person in the room. Lackey came in and looked surprised to see me. We spoke briefly, but it was clear he didn't have time to discuss big questions. He had to make music. Once again, I was left alone to clap my hands in time and try to reconcile my Yankee preconceptions with what I had seen around me. But the music urged me to ignore it. Beverly Trice and the New Gospel Singers were on stage. They were singing a song whose refrain was a simple seven-word sentence, You don't know how blessed you are. They kept repeating the phrase. So simple, but each time it was sung, it seemed to have a different meaning. The spirit moved Beverly Trice. She came off the little stage and began to dance her way up the aisle. Her backup singers laid hands on her to try and control her shaking. As she worked her way through the audience, she kept chanting the phrase, You don't know how blessed you are, over and over, each time emphasizing different words, thus creating a syncopated beat that rescued me from my thoughts and took me far away from myself. You don't know how blessed you are. You don't know how blessed you are. You don't know how blessed you are.